If you were here last week, we're, I don't know, this is too short to call a series, but we're looking at the subject of fear. This is week two. <clears throat> I said last week, this, is, this topic is so huge. Uh, the term fear or some version of that occurs over 500 times in the scriptures. It's so huge that there's really no adequate way to cover it in a couple of weeks. But we broke it down. We said we'd at least scratch the surface. Last week we talked about what God said to fear. And if you remember, let me read the definition we were working with so we're all on the same page. Fear was the emotion experience when we face something that has power, has to have power to harm us. It usually results in a desire to escape or flee or to avoid the harm, bottom line. So fear was related to something, person, situation, etc., that had power to harm us and our desire to avoid the harm that could come from that. Because of that, we said fear, appropriate fear, was helpful. It was a helpful thing. It was like pain. If you burn your fingers, that tells you, get away from the stove. Fear, appropriate fear, was a helpful thing. It's a helpful response to us. It's also a very rational and prudent response. If something is confronting my life or my situation that has power to harm me, it's absolutely rational, sane, and appropriate that I would, in fear, seek to avoid that damage or harm. We also said, conversely, that to fail to fear those things, so to speak, those situations that have power to harm us, shows a lack of sanity or rationality, that it's absolutely appropriate fear, appropriate fear of those situations that have power to harm. We concluded saying, last week, the first phase of this thing on fear, that God commands and exhorts fear of him as the ultimate object of fear. That's because he is omnipotent. He has all power. And as we read in Luke 12, verse 5, Jesus said, fear God because he not only has all power, but he has absolute power to harm. Ultimately, that is, in hell, Luke 12, 5 said, I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testaments, When there's an object presented for our fear, it's God. And that makes sense. He's ultimately powerful. He has ultimate power to harm, Jesus says in Luke 12, 5. This week, we're turning the tables and we're looking at the other side of fear, breaking this down into two big chunks. And these are the things not to fear. Lots of uh, scriptures that admonished, encouraged, exhorted us to fear God. There's also a ton that tell us not to fear, in some cases, what not to fear. My quick search, I've got over 75 occurrences where the scripture says, don't fear, fear not, don't worry, don't be anxious, worrying, anxiety being related to fear. If you look at these generally, you go through a list of these verses, commands and exhortations to not fear invading armies, people, intimidation, judgment, don't fear a lack of food, Don't fear idols or other gods. Don't fear what you'll say. Don't fear what you'll wear. Don't fear what you'll do. In the end, one verse, which we'll look at later, says don't fear anything. God aside, looking at things as we know them on the earth. Don't fear anything. Now, if you stop and think about your own life, if it looks anything like mine, or most people I know, Fear is an overwhelming, almost constant experience for us all. 
every day, every week, every month, every year. Fear of things, Scripture tells us not to fear. There's at some very basic level in all of humans, and Ecclesiastes talks about there's insanity in our hearts. We don't perceive things rightly. We tend to fear things we shouldn't fear, and we tend not to fear the one we should fear. There's insanity. But think about your life. How many times a day, or how many times last week, do you catch yourself with some sense of dread or fear or anxiety? Or maybe you wake up in the morning and you wake up afraid of what's coming in the day. Or maybe you go to bed at night and you can't sleep because you're worried about one thing or another. If you stop and think about it, most of us are controlled, most often in inappropriate, unhealthy ways, by fear of one thing or another. And if you start looking at these scriptures about what God says not to fear, most of the things you and I fear, they're in the list that God says don't fear, don't worry about those things. And yet the truth is most of us go through life with the common experience of being oppressed, cursed by inappropriate fears. Last week we talked about the Christmas carol by Dickens and the fact that the ghost that appears to Ebenezer Scrooge, he carries these weights of chains with him, these metal weights around in the afterlife. Most of us, I think, walk through this life with those same kind of weights, but their fears, their worries, their anxieties, and we're carrying this baggage with us that God would really love to free us from. And these scriptures will talk about that. We'll look more at this. But most of us, day by day, are carrying weights of fear and worry and anxiety that God really would just like to say, why don't you set that aside? I've got a better way for you. One of the characteristics Jesus says of the last days, and I assume that we're getting closer to that, obviously every day that we go along, is that men's heart would fail them for fear. And you know, the truth is, no matter how technologically we advance and no matter how much wealth we accumulate, the course of most people's experience over time is not of less fear, it's of more fear. Technology doesn't solve it. Wealth doesn't solve it. Any kind of human advancement doesn't solve it. Fear remains. Oswald Chambers said this, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Last week we talked about fearing God. Chambers says, and I think rightly so, an appropriate fear of God frees you from all other unnecessary and unhealthy fears. Before we look at these scripture passages that talk about this, Think about fear in this way, too. I want to compare fear with faith. I think this is the reason why fear is so powerful an element in anyone's life, is because fear and faith are, in a sense, twins. They are very tightly related. They are like opposite sides of the same coin. Think of it, uh, listen to these statements, and see if you don't agree. What we fear, we give credence to, we believe in. What we fear affects what we do and what we don't do. Our fear shapes our life and helps define its borders. In other words, if we fear something, we recognize its power, right or wrong, and then we change, we make decisions in our life based on that, based on fear, what we fear. That sounds quite a bit like faith to me. Faith is giving credence to God 
and believing in him, our faith determines the way we live, shapes our life and its borders. Same impact. In fear, we acknowledge a power that can harm us. In faith, we acknowledge and trust a power that can save us. In fear, we take prudent action to avoid harm. In faith, we take prudent action to avoid harm and or to please God. Faith keeps us from doing some things and compels us to do others. Fear keeps us from doing some things and compels us to do others. Typically, you'll find in practice what you fear is in a sense what you trust. And then you guide your responses to life based on that. So when you fear something, you actually empower that object, person, or situation in your life. Your fear, just like your faith, empowers the object of that fear or faith. Um, If I fear a certain person, let's say, I will avoid them. I don't want to see them, so I will avoid them. Or if I fear... um, that they have power to harm me in some way. I'll manage some element of my life so that they can't harm me. The actions of my life are following the object of my fear. And this is why, again, not only related to power, which God has infinitely, but because of the impact or effect on our life, it's also the reason why, just based on our own sanity and what's good for us, God should be the ultimate and only supreme object of our fear, because we'll guide our life based on what we fear as well as what we believe in or exercise faith in. So faith and fear are very tightly connected. What you fear and what you have faith in will guide your life. It'll define the parameters of your life. It'll shape the choices you make. Looking at a couple of verses in the scripture that talk about not fearing. Psalm 27 is one of my favorite. It may be one you know. But Psalm 27, the first three verses, David, who knew something about ups and downs in life, armies and kings and opposition and running and threats, said this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, in spite of this, I will be confident. David's whole thought is, if God is the one on my side, why would I fear anyone or anything else? In fact, I think it's Psalm 91 There's this great picture of though the mountains shake and though the land slides into the heart of the sea, I won't be afraid. If if we apply that to our life, it's as if every structure in your life, everything you've ever counted on or known, falls apart. You won't be fearful because you have God. David looks at his life and says, God's my defender. He's the one that's with me. That being the case, why? How would I fear anyone or anything else? See, if you don't start with God as the object of your fear, as Chambers said, then you end up fearing everything else. If your eyes aren't fixed on God, if you don't have David's confidence, if you don't know God, or 
the reality of who he is and what he's like isn't your focus, then that fear and the object of your fear shifts down to these things, these earthly things that David says there's no reason to fear. So David says, if the Lord's my salvation, if he's my defense, why would I fear anyone or anything else? Look at Isaiah 41 and 43 if you want. This morning's opening song comes from these passages. And these passages in Isaiah, I think, are some of the loveliest in all the Bible. They are extremely encouraging. Written to Israel before times of really severe judgment come. But in Isaiah 41, verse 10, God speaks to the nation and he says, Do not fear, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Just like Psalm 27. Do not anxiously or fearfully look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Every exhortation to be free of fear is based on God's presence or provision with them. He says the reason they don't need to fear, the reason he commands them not to, is because he is with them. He is their strength. He is their defense. Isaiah 41 at verse 10. And then further down at verse 14, he says, Don't fear, you worm, Jacob. Now, this doesn't sound particularly loving, does it? But Jacob, a term for Israel here, he's saying, you know, you men and you nation, you are so small. You're like a worm on the ground. He's changing comparisons. But for us, we would look, an ant on the ground would be similar. It's this tiny, insignificant thing. He doesn't say this to make Israel feel insignificant. He does it to remind them how small they are in comparison to him. His strength, his stature is the thing they need to focus on. Don't fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. In other words, get some perspective here. You guys, you're little like a worm on the ground. You know what? You don't have the strength to defend yourselves. But the Holy One of Israel, the great creator God of the universe, is the one who's telling you he's your Redeemer. So don't try to rely on your own strength. You're like a worm, not much strength, no backbone there. But your Redeemer, your Savior, is the one of all power. So you need not fear. In Isaiah 43, similar thought. Starting at verse 1, But now thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Our song, straight out of Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they'll not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame harm you. If you think about these verses, you remember when we studied through the book of Daniel? These verses preceded the book of Daniel. Frankly, I wonder if our friends Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah weren't thinking about these verses when they faced Babylonian kings and lion's dens and fiery furnaces. They had a promise from God for their very situation that said, you guys don't be afraid because I'm with you. I've got you by the hand. I won't forsake you. I'll be with you. 
These verses, I take it, strengthened them when they went through their trials in Babylon. And these were not good times. They're in a foreign land. They're displaced out of their country where God said he would bless them. And they're subject to foreign pagan kings. And they're commanded to fall down to fear a human king and bow to a human idol. But they are strengthened by promises God had given through Isaiah that says, hey, don't worry, when you go through these trials, I'll be with you. And God delivers them. I think one of the big problems we have related to fear, what we fear and what we're anxious or worried about, is the fact that oftentimes our sight is not rising above the horizon of our temporary experience. If you think about Daniel or his friends as an example, if their fear was tied to the harm that could come on them as they faced a den of lions or a furnace or an angry king, then they would be fearful indeed because these were, very, these were situations that had great potential for harm. But they had promises from God that strengthened them and took them through the situation. So they were delivered. Sometimes, though, we're not delivered. And God has not promised to deliver us in every situation. In fact, as a Christian in the world today, Jesus promises us persecution. He promises us troubles as a reward for following him. So if we focus on the troubles that are promised to come our way, we feel anxious and worried and fearful. And I think that's the problem. We've got to lift our eyes higher than the horizon of our experience right now to look at what are the greater purposes God is achieving. I think this is why if we're only looking at our life as we know it now, we're going to be worried and and, uh, full of fear. Think of Job. Job said towards the end of the book that no purpose of God's could be thwarted. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. That means any and every purpose God has for your life and mine as those who've come to know him will be ultimately fulfilled. God has all power, so his purposes can't be thwarted. Anything he plans for you and I will be fulfilled. It'll happen. So nothing that comes into your life or mine can thwart God's purpose. And he has said that his purpose in your life and mine is to make us like his son. It's to recreate in us the image of Jesus himself. So if I'm going along in life and I say God's purpose is to make me like his son, he promises in Romans 8 to use any and every circumstance that comes my way to help shape me in that process and that nothing that comes into my life will be able to separate me from him, then I can face every trouble that enters my life with confidence because I know even if short-term it's painful, that ultimately it will accomplish God's purpose and I'll be conformed more to the image of his son. So that if I'm looking at God up here and God's promises for my life, I know even if I'm troubled, in physical pain, rejected, betrayed, suffered loss, any kind of loss you can think of, any kind of harm on the earth, any of that going on, I can still look above my experience, above the horizon to God and his promises and say and know, God, your, your purposes in my life will be fully accomplished and you'll use these hurtful things to accomplish good in my life. So it's not that I like the pain, it's not that I want the troubled times, but it's that if I'm making God the object of my fear and my faith, I can say, God, I trust you to use these circumstances for my ultimate good. 
Paul says in two separate passages, I think we've mentioned before, 2 Corinthians and Romans, that the sufferings of this present time, no matter how bad they are, and Paul went through more sufferings than you and I will experience probably ever in his short lifetime. Any suffering we go through now, he says it's momentary, it's light. In other words, by God's perspective, it, it's, uh, it's small time. It's not insignificant in our experience, but in the bigger picture. It's not the controlling or the compelling interest. Hebrews 12 talks about discipline. It says that as Christians, God disciplines you like his children. And if you've had children, you know that sometimes you've got to inflict a little pain so that Junior can become the person he needs to be. Junior doesn't like the pain. Junior would like to avoid the pain. And pain is not the issue for you as a parent, but you're using something that will get Junior's attention for Junior's good. So you use the pain that you either inflict or that happens by natural circumstances to help your son or your daughter become the person they need to become. So here we are in a world full of pain and frustration and confusion, and God says he takes those hurtful, troubling times and situations that we face, and just like the discipline of a child, he uses them to conform us to the image of his son. And Hebrews 12 says when we're going through these times, these troubles, we don't like it. We're not masochists. We don't want, we don't enjoy or revel in the pain. But if our eyes are looking above the horizon of our experience, God is saying, I'm going to take that hurtful thing in your life and I'm going to use it for your good and make you more like my son. I'm going to train you through the hurtful, troubling thing. You'll come out better for it in the end. So as we go through situations or as we interact with people that we're tempted to fear or worry or have anxiety about, We've got to lift our eyes higher than that person or that experience and remember who God is and what his promises to to us are. We've got to look beyond the momentary to the eternal. That's the perspective God wants us to have. If we have that, it puts these things that are going on right now in perspective. You know, the truth is, guys, one day, and it won't be very long for any of us, we're all a vapor on the earth, life is short, we're going to be in eternity, And we'll look back from eternity and the worst things that happen in our life, they'll seem like a prick, a pinprick, an insignificant thing. Because time will be swallowed by eternity and life will have swallowed up death. And we'll look back and this will be like a dream. So for now, we've got to remember, we've got to look above our experience. We've got to look to God to make him the focus of our fear and our faith. And we've got to remember what his promises are. So that as we face the situations or the people or the circumstances that would normally elicit fear, worry, anxiety, we're going to say, no, Lord, we know who you are. We know your promises to us. We fear you and we trust you. And because of that, we don't have to fear anything else going on in our life. That's the difference. It's not enough to just know God. We've got to know that he has purposes, that these troubling times that would normally elicit fear, that they're actually going to work for our good. So the floods may come and the fire may burn and it won't feel good at the time. But God has hold of our hand and he says, I'm with you in it and I'll use it. If I don't deliver you from the trouble, I'll use it for your good. And that's the reason we can experience freedom. 
or calm, even in those troubling times. On the night Jesus was betrayed, in John 14, 27, he said this to his disciples. He's ready to face the ultimate trial and test of his fear of faith in the crucifixion the next day. And this is what he tells his disciples. Verse 27, John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's not as the world gives that I'm giving to you. Don't let your heart be troubled and don't let it be fearful. The last thing before he leaves, one of the last things he says, guys, this is what I'm leaving with you. I'm going to leave. And he did tell them he'd send the Spirit. But he said, just before he leaves, what I'm leaving with you is not my personal physical presence, but I'm leaving you my peace. One of the terms for fear has to do with agitation or anxiety or worry. You know, if you take a bowl of water and it's sitting calmly, it's at peace or it's at rest. If you put a spoon in and stir it, you agitate the water. It was at peace, it was at rest, now it's agitated, it's swirling and turning. That's one of the the concepts of fear and worry. And Jesus says, in your life and mine, what I'm leaving you is calm in the storm. I'm leaving you peace in the midst of a troubled world, but I'm giving you my peace in it. So even though the world or the situations we face around us, they're like the spoon in the bowl of water. They churn and they stir. Jesus says, you can actually be at calm. You can be at rest in the midst of the trouble, as he was at this point, even though he's facing crucifixion the next day. And then lastly, Philippians 4. This is probably one of the best-known passages having to do with fear or anxiety. We've talked about certain things the Scripture says not to fear. Philippians 4 covers everything. Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul says, Be anxious, be fearful, be troubled, be worried about nothing. Don't fear anything. But in everything, these are exclusive terms, fear, nothing, in everything, by prayer, talking to God about your situation, and supplication, that's making requests, petitioning God, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." Again, this doesn't guarantee that you're going to be saved out of a situation. You may still go through the flood and the water and the fire. But you take those concerns to God. You unburden yourself. You take those chains of fear and you give them to God. And he says what he gives you is calm and rest and peace. I can sleep at night with calm and rest and peace. Boy, fear keeps me up all night. If you think about the times we live in right now, there's terrorism in our own country as well as around the world. There's a falling stock market. And, you know, if you look back over the last several years, there's thousands of people have been laid off of what were, in other times, secure jobs. There's been corporate scandal at unprecedented levels. Many people and families have lost their entire livelihoods and all of their savings, their retirements. If there's a time at which you'd be tempted to be fearful, I'd... This is a pretty good time. There's plenty of reasons that we can think that there are situations that can harm us. But in the midst of all that, these verses, Philippians 4, not the least, say, don't fear anything. But in every situation that comes your way, you take those things to God, take your temptation to fear 
or worry or anxiety and give it to God and then walk away with the peace of God that passes understanding. The thought there is that left on your own, there's no reason to be at peace. It doesn't make sense. But in God's economy, when I remember to raise my eyes above the horizon of my experience and remember who God is and his promises, what he's promised to do, then I can live with the current uncomfortable situation I'm facing because I know God's going to be at work and he'll use it for good. Ultimately, the wisest, sanest, most helpful thing we can do is to fear God and trust him because when we do that, we need fear nothing and no one else. So be careful where your fear and your faith are. Ultimately, we want to fear God and we want to trust him. Having done that, we need fear nothing and no one else. In closing, just as an illustration, uh, I read a book, short book yesterday, by, uh, I may get this wrong, Saint Zupere, the, uh, the Little Prince. How many here have read that book? Wow. Guys, we need to get literary here. The Little Prince. It's a very short story. I think it's all this guy wrote. He died in World War II. Uh, it's an outstanding short story. And briefly, it is this, that the little prince is a little fella, I suppose maybe five or six years old, if you laid eyes on him. Anyway, he lived on a little planet. He may call it an asteroid, I forget. But anyway, very small planet. He hitches a ride with a flock of geese, and he comes to the earth. And he's out in the desert, and he's looking around, and he's got a rose back on his planet that he wants to take care of. There's a pilot whose plane has gone down. This is in the Sahara Desert. They're a 1,000 miles away from any civilization. The pilot's got to fix his plane. And in the week or so that he's in the desert, he spends time with the little prince whom he meets. And he, the little prince has him draw some pictures because he's got to take some things back with him to his planet. But they develop a great relationship, and the little prince, through his simplicity and through his truthfulness, shows the pilot the way things really are, the older knowledgeable pilot, so to speak. One of the characters that the little prince meets in the desert is a golden snake. And initially the little prince says, Guy, you've got no power. You're, you're weak. He says, No, I have, I have great power, actually. I have power to send you home. Towards the end of the story, the pilot is talking with the little prince, and he understands that the little prince is ready to go home. It's been almost a year since he came to the earth. And his star and the earth are lined back up and he's ready to go home. The trouble is his body's too heavy to get him back home. And so the object that is the fear of the pilot and was the fear of the little prince becomes the very object that the little prince embraces to get him home. So as the pilot comes up and he knows something's going on and he sees the little prince talking to the snake... He feels twinges of pain. The little prince tells him he's a little fearful, but not to worry. And the next day, that night, he tells him, don't come and see me because it's going to look like I'm dead and it's going to look like I'm suffering. But really, the truth is, I'm going back home. My body's too heavy and I can't get back to my star. And My rose needs me and I need to get home. So the object that the little prince had feared before and the object that the pilot wants to spare him from, the snake bites him, and the little prince dies. But he tells the pilot before he goes, he says, when you look up at the night sky now, you see a lot of stars. 
He says, but when I'm gone and I'm back on my star, you'll hear me laughing. And now when you look at the night sky, when I'm gone, you won't know which star I'm on. And so when you look up at the night sky, all the stars will be laughing. And he said, I won't know which planet you're on. So when I look out from my star at all the shiny objects in the sky, I'll hear the laughter of the water that you and I drank together. But see, for both of them, this comes because the object that they feared is used for this greater good and the the trials, the troubles are, in the words of a Keith Green song, they're turned to gold in the future. And what looked like a source of pain, it becomes a source of laughter. That's what God does with the troubles you and I have in life. It's just like that. It's the sting of the snake that produces what it looks like is death. It's actually, in the story, it's liberation. And what looks like separation turns the laughter of the little prince into the laughter of the stars every night. And that's what God will do for you and I. It doesn't mean that things are easy here. It doesn't mean that we like the pain. But it means that we look up, we see God, we remember who he is, we remember what his promises are, And all the stars laugh for us when we look like the little prince did at what God is going to do, not at the objects of our fear. But what will God use those for in your life and mine? Let's pray. Father, you are always and ultimately the supreme object of fear because you have all power. And Lord, you are the supreme object of our faith because you are inherently all love and all benevolence. Father, how right and good it is that we worship and honor you and love you and trust you and fear you, Lord, because of who you are and what you're like. Father, I feel most of the time that we are the worm like Jacob. We're not raising our eyes high enough to see your glory or remember your promises. Father, help us be like Daniel and his friends in Babylon who faced angry kings and hurtful situations but remembered your words in Isaiah. And Father, whether you're sparing us, delivering us from trouble, or whether you're holding our hand as we go through it, help us to keep our vision focused on you. Help us to trust and therefore find consolation and courage knowing that you'll take even the hurtful times. Even the things we would otherwise fear, Lord, you'll take them and you'll use them for our good. And that, Lord, like the little prince, we can look at the troubles in life and we can hear laughter or we can see empty space. God, help us to fix our gaze on you. Help us to remember that you turn trials into gold. Help us to make you our ultimate hope, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.